And welcome back into the Bama Beat Podcast, brought to you by Wickles Piggles. This is your host, once again, sitting here with Brett Hudson. My name's Clint Lamb. Almost forgot again, Brett. <laughs> <laughs> right here out the gate, man. I am rusty. It has been a it's been a while. How you been, man? <laughs> well, I haven't forgotten the fact that I have a name, so I guess there's there's that to to say for myself, right? Man, I'm talking. You know, I do this every day, uh, but yet I hop on here, change the pace just a little bit, and everything falls apart. I don't know what's going on. Um, kind of like I guess the world right now. Seems like everything's gone crazy over the last, you know, at least since the last time we talked on on a podcast. Um, and I guess that's going to be the point of it. So why don't you tell everybody what we're going to be talking about today? Yeah. So, uh, since the last time we podcasted, the big 10 and the PAC 12 have canceled non-conference football games. Many schools, Alabama included, have transitioned from voluntary workouts to mandatory workouts. Alabama went to a mobile only ticketing model. Multiple SEC schools have publicly floated the idea of having no more than 20,000 people in their football stadiums. Steve Sarkeesian had successful heart surgery. Everything on Twitter became cake for some reason. And some stuff on the recruiting front, which we'll get to in a podcast later this week. But we're going to do our best to touch on most, if not all of that, in a podcast that is, of course, brought to you by Wickles Pickles. You got pickles, relishes, okras, a sandwich spread, and much more. They're starting a a pretty cool movement that they're going to be doing Pretty soon, I'm just going to leave it as vague as possible and let them uh, unveil their their next plan as they as they go forward. But go to WicklesPickles.com to learn more about their products. Wickles Pickles, let's get wicked, much like a lot of the college athletic world's reactions to the Pac-12 and, and mostly the Big Ten since they were first in their decisions to cancel non-conference football games there have been a lot of takes a lot of reactions to to this and obviously the the Pac-12 decision is the one that most impacted Alabama considering they had a game against USC on the schedule for for 2020 but the Big Ten is the decision that really sent some some shockwaves through the college athletics community because they were first number one but number two a, a lot of I don't want to say a lot of, but clearly the SEC, the ACC, and the Big 12 thought they were acting a little ahead of schedule or or even to be as bold as to say prematurely in in doing so. They thought there were a couple more weeks at least to uh, gather some more information and maybe do some secondary planning in the case that this is the decision you want to make. But those other conferences are, are acting on on that timeline, and I imagine the SEC will continue to to do so. What was your reaction when the Big Twi- Big Ten and the Pac-12 made those decisions? Um, yeah, I kind of took the same approach uh, w- as far as the uh, the approach the SEC's taken. Uh, just with the SEC, they're playing the wait and see game, which to me makes the most sense. Because you look at where we were at even three weeks ago, you know, it, it looked pretty much like college football was going to be a guarantee at that point. It looked like, you know, we were talking about stadium capacity and right. how many fans we could have in the stands, you know, whether it be maybe half capacity, 75%. There were still SEC teams that were saying, you know, it's possible we might have full capacity. And then in three weeks' time, um, you know, here we are where we are, right? But three weeks from now, you know, for better or for worse, things could look a lot different. So I think, you know, making this kind of decision now, I don't feel like was the best move. Um, and, you know, I still don't know. Uh, I've looked into an interview with Kevin Warren, the um, commissioner of the Big Ten. I think the Pac-12 was a lot more reaction-based, um, their decision to do it. But with Kevin Warren and the Big Ten, I, I've kind of looked into some interviews he's done since then. I understand he's saying that we're looking out for our student athletes and and everything else, but it just had I haven't really seen anything why he, from all indications, from things that other commissioners have said, he went in like a 24-hour period from saying we're not going to be going ahead and making that call to making that call. You know what changed in that 24 hours? I don't really know. You might have an answer to that, but I haven't been able to find anything. And uh, and I just think that it was a little bit strange. But at this point, and Greg Sankey has kind of alluded to it, 
you know, he doesn't know if, if we're kind of all these different conferences are in a, you know, we're out for ourselves uh, mode right now. Uh, as, you know, the way he's approaching it is very, uh, it's a very different approach. He's not there yet. But what I'm most disappointed in is the fact that I'm not going to get to watch Oregon wipe the floor with North Dakota State and prove you wrong and get in on that bet. I'm actually quite disappointed. Are you, are you seriously about to front for the listeners right now and act like you haven't been concerned about that bet for the last few weeks? Are you really about <laughs> to the Bama beat listeners right now? I, I did text. I, I kind of messed around with you when it, when the Pac-12 first uh, announced that they would be going to a conference-only schedule and act like I was you know super disappointed. And then I did come clean and say that I felt like um, after watching a lot of Trey Lance, I, I was nervous. Now that Oregon defense is was expected or is expected, I guess it's still a is expected to be really really good. Um, and so I would have loved to have just seen the matchup. You know, Trey Lance being one of the best college quarterbacks out there, maybe even a potential top ten pick in the uh, 2021 NFL draft. Watched him go against Javon Holland and Kayvon Thibodeau and. Um, you know, uh, Brady Breeze, I mean, across the board, I feel like that would have been a great, fun matchup to watch. But I will also admit, I was starting to get a little bit more nervous back when we had that conversation, whenever that was. I don't even remember when we first brought that up, but I had not. Like February, right? Because we were still in the studio at the time, and we didn't really do much studio work in March before everything shut down. Yeah, it would have had to have been, you know, January or February. Um, and, and I don't know. That was before I got into the the deep dive into Trey Lance. And then as I started watching, I was like, you know, this is a guy from a dual threat perspective who, you know, as good as I think Oregon's defense is going to be, he could cause some problems. So uh, the more I watched, the more I was like, man, I mean, did, did I say, was it 21 points? It was 21. Yeah, that, that was the part I was nervous about. I still felt like Oregon was going to win that game, but I was like, man, that's a, that's a lot of points for a guy that's, uh, you know, playing across from him. Uh, being a, a top 10 potential quarterback. Exactly. I was starting to get a little bit nervous. I'm not going to lie. Oh, I, I, I'm under no illusion that North Dakota State was going to win that game. They most likely weren't. But keeping that game within 21 points, I felt pretty good about. And I, yeah, the, the more I dove into it, I, <laughs> granted, I'm still going to stand by the fact that I'm not going to automatically concede a bet we don't know what would have happened and i'm going to continue to believe in the guys that i had bought into uh for oregon so i'm going to continue to fight for the fact that i think they would have won by more than 21 points but i was more nervous about that in let's say april than i was in february fair enough fair enough but i, I mean honestly the the entirety of Oregon's non-conference schedule is fascinating. They have North Dakota State to start. They were going to play Ohio State and then play Hawaii after that, which I reminded myself today. I totally forgot. Did you remember that Todd Graham is now the head coach at Hawaii? Really? Todd Graham. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, I, I'd forgotten about that, too. Yeah. Sure. So anyway, that would have been one of the most interesting non-conference schedules in America, and that's uh, that's uh, that's shot now. But to get back to the the subject at hand, I thought I don't think the Big Ten, and then in in suing fashion, the Pac-12. I don't think the Big Ten was wrong in what they did because I, I still believe it's more likely than not that. Power five schools are not going to play their full 12 game conference, 12 game schedule. I think there's going to be some modifications that take away non-conference games and you might see some conference games added to make up for that a little bit, but I don't, I don't think power five schools are going to play their current 12 game schedule as it is currently designed. I think doing so, so early without getting a straight up plan with the other power five conferences for how they're going to schedule within each other and how you're going to preserve some interconference rivalries that can play out, which I've got a, I've got a proposal for you on that shortly. I thought the big 10 was premature in saying, we're going to cut, we're going to kill these non-conference games but we don't yet have a plan for what our schedule is going to look like. I think if you waited a couple more weeks and had some more conversations with power five conferences, you could say, yeah, we're not going to play 
these non-conference games, but we have this new scheduling model where we're going to play non-conference games now, or that that would be new for the SEC and the ACC. It wouldn't be new for for the Big Ten. So the Big Ten could come out and say, we're going to play 10 conference games now, and we're going to have one non-conference game. So Iowa can still play Iowa State, and we've made an agreement with these schools that they're going to play each other. So now everyone in the Big Ten is going to have a 10-game conference schedule with one non-conference game. You could do something like that. And if you had waited a couple more weeks and had some more of those conversations, maybe something like that can percolate, or at least you can get closer to that happening so you can shortly follow the announcements with, we're not having these non-conference games, but we are going to do this. Uh, I I feel like the Big Ten kind of shot itself in the foot and mostly just let, let the conversation get away from it and let the narrative get away from it. Uh, by not having the plan as solidified as possible. Because now what you do is you is you allow media fans and whoever else to just speculate wildly on everything and possibly gum up the works on some of your, your conversations. Um, well, that's kind of where I fall on that. Well, I do understand um, from the, the perspective, and, and this isn't anything against the – the non-Power 5 schools. Um, but, you know, you look at, you take Alabama's schedule, for example. Um, I can understand if Alabama decided, or the SEC in general, I'm just using Alabama's schedule as an example, but I, I can understand if they chose a lot of these non-Power 5 schools to, to kind of take them out of the equation. And it's no offense to them whatsoever, but, you know, Alabama is taking and has the funds to take every necessary precaution. But if you're lining up against Georgia state or Kent state or UT Martin, do they have the ability to do the same? And if they do not, if they can't test as regularly, um, do all the things that are going to be required to try to keep COVID-19 at bay throughout the course of the season, then when you get on a football field with them, you, you know, some of your own players can contract it and then they can spread it throughout your own team. So it, that that's where I, I really understand. Well, if, um, if I can quickly interject on on that point real quick, not only the, the testing stuff is absolutely true. Like Georgia State, Kent State, and UT Martin cannot afford to test and protect their players and staff the same way that Alabama can. So putting your student athletes and coaches on the same field as those programs is a bigger risk. But also in – in an environment where you're not allowed to have full capacity at your stadium, these games don't make financial sense anymore because a school like Alabama can schedule Georgia state and agree to pay them 1.9 or 2 million or, or whatever the number is. I haven't uh, received my, my, uh, my FOIA request back on that yet, but reporting to come soon, uh, I guess is a way to, Uh, to tease that, but they can pay Georgia state, whatever the amount is while also keeping in the back of their mind. If we sell X number of tickets at X face value and we make this much money in concessions, this, that, and the other, that's still going to be a net positive for us. We're still going to make money on the game because whatever amount we pay Georgia state to come here, we're going to make more than that by holding the game here and selling the tickets and the parking and, and everything else. So that's a yes, great point. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's an issue for the, it's an issue on testing, but it's also an issue for money in, in this very, very likely scenario where you can't have 100% capacity at your football stadium. That's actually a great point. And so I completely understand. Um, and this isn't I don't think anybody's trying to leave anybody out to dry. It's just a matter of, you know, there are going to be some conversations that have to be had if, you know, all the conferences start going to a conference only schedule or you have some kind of mixture maybe um, of, you know, the, the SEC and ACC or something like that. Whatever it ends up being, a lot of these smaller programs and, and their, their programs, not only just their football programs, but a lot of their other athletic programs, their success and their ability to have those um, are directly a result of the money they receive from some of these games. They're, you know, they're, Georgia State doesn't want to come to Tuscaloosa and get their brains beat out, you know, for nothing. They understand that it's, it's financially necessary to do so. And as unfortunate as it's going to be, the financial burden on who, you know, ends up eating that cost, whether it be Alabama, whether it be Georgia State, um, 
you know, that's going to have to be some conversations and then probably there's going to be some lawyers involved in some, you know, a, a legal process if that's where that ends up going. But as of right now, you know, I know that I'm going down the hypothetical road, even though that's looking very likely and we need to be able to acknowledge that it is still speaking in hypothetical because Greg Sankey still want to try to play this, this season as is. What we do know is they're not playing Southern Cal in week one in Arlington. That's that's just that's not happening because of the decisions the Pac-12 has already made. Now it's just a matter of, you know, does Alabama go out and try to schedule, um, you know, another team to fill that spot and leave the rest of the schedule as is? Do they go to conference only? There's still a lot of decisions that have to be made. No, I, I agree. So for, for all of those reasons, I think you and I both agree that the bye games with the group of five teams and the FCS teams, those are – uh, almost a guarantee to not happen. Do, do we agree on that front? Absolutely, yes. For, for the testing reasons and the financial reasons that, that we just laid out. There are ways where you can still replace games or at least get some back to where, in the SEC's case, you're not just giving your fans an eight-game conference schedule. You can give them more than that. And, and I wrote a column about that last week, a, a modest proposal for the SEC and the ACC, admittedly modest, because I am. there is a reason they are athletic directors at Power 5 institutions, and I am a local sports writer. There are very much reasons for both of our statuses in life. But I, I kind of th- got along this line of thinking because there are four annual rivalries between the ACC and the SEC that make a lot of sense for those games to be played both financially, regionally, et cetera. They are um, Georgia, Georgia Tech, Florida, Florida State, Louisville, Kentucky, and Clemson, South Carolina. If you play, if you find a way to play those games, if the SEC and the ACC can agree on a testing model and health protocols and everything else to where you can play those four games, that leaves you with 10 teams in each league without an additional ninth game, assuming both leagues go to just an eight-game conference uh, model. You could just match up those 10 remaining teams in each league for an extra conference game, but you reach a snafu in the SEC where all four of the teams that have ACC rivalries are East Division teams. So you'd have two games where SEC West teams are facing each other for a second time, which seems like something you'd want to avoid. You could also go 10 SEC versus 10 ACC, but if we're going to at least take travel into consideration in this model, that's probably going to have a handful of problematic matchups where like Texas A&M is forced to go to Pitt or something. That's that's right. a long, a long travel in, during a pandemic. So here's what I came up with. Have in-conference matchups of Texas A&M versus Missouri, Arkansas versus Vandy, and Ole Miss versus Tennessee in the SEC. In the ACC, those matchups are Wake Forest and Duke, Syracuse and Pitt, and Virginia Tech and Boston College. All of those matchups are teams that are relatively close to one another geographically that were not scheduled to play each other in 2020. That leaves Alabama, Auburn, Mississippi State, and LSU in the SEC, and Virginia, North Carolina, NC State, and Miami in the ACC. North Carolina and Auburn were scheduled to play each other in 2020, as were NC State and uh, Mississippi State. So match those two up. That's easy. Then you're left with Alabama and LSU, Virginia and Miami. Bama and Miami are opening the 2021 season against one another. So let's just have LSU play Miami while Bama plays Virginia. What do you think of that model? Yeah, I actually really like that and the way that that actually ends up setting up um, based off of things that were already supposed to happen. It seems like things would work out fairly well in that scenario, and you'd be able to keep those rivalry games, which is super important for both conferences. Now, the the obvious problem with that, or I think the most obvious problem with that model is Notre Dame, because Notre Dame has that agreement with uh, with ACC schools. I think they play six ACC yeah. each year. Um, so if, if the ACC is going to keep Notre Dame and it's – in its fold for this 2020 season, then that uh, that that makes this model almost impossible unless the ACC takes this on and then adds an 11th game somehow for its other 
schools that aren't scheduled to play Notre Dame. And frankly, the SEC has to deal with this as well because Arkansas is scheduled to play Notre Dame um, in 2020. So um, there's some some flies in the ointment. Um, But I I just thought it was a good way to give fans a ninth game that – is not necessarily a guarantee in, in a college football environment where non-conference games are not allowed. And it made sense geographically. It made sense financially. It made sense with the health protocols. If you can keep these teams relatively close to each other from a travel perspective and eliminate some, some variables there. So uh, there are other agreements like that that are on the table, of course. And there are other ways that you could make those matchups and, and reach a somewhat similar conclusion. Some of those matchups are, are subjective in nature. I'm, I'm, op- I'm open to, to admitting that, but there are ways that you can do that. And, and again, if the big 10 had uh, held its horses, so to speak, and kind of been more uh, done more behind the scenes to address some of these variables and potential um, agreements before it announced that it, it wasn't going to have non-conference games, then you can you you can sort of have these things planned by the time you make certain announcements. But I also understand the flip side of things where coaches and fans and and even more so coaches are anxious and antsy to figure out what exactly they're planning for and when they have to have their squad ready and what kind of things they have to do to make that game happen and play the game the way they they want to play it. So I I understand the Big Ten's desire to set that, to make that announcement and and give their coaches and their fans some sort of clarity on what is to happen. I I just thought another couple weeks could have benefited everyone. And it's kind of a, a weird situation for me to be in where I'm encouraging the college athletics powers that be to stay silent for a couple more weeks. That's not something I <laughs> generally do. It's not something I'm very good at uh, advocating for, but in this case, I thought it, I thought it made sense. Do you think um, that not having um, a, a unified decision maker, someone that's kind of, you know, sitting at the top overlooking all these conferences, whether it be, you know, a, a an NCAA commissioner or you know because what we've seen is we've seen the NCAA pretty much take a step back and say you know hey you guys decide this for yourselves I, I get that from the current standpoint of where they're at from a power perspective but I think it's also kind of exposing the NCAA a little bit and kind of you know in a time where you would think the NCAA would be playing a much bigger role in this they really don't have any say uh, do you think that that's kind of exposing or the the, the need for a you know top decision maker, whether that be a singular person or a singular group, someone that kind of oversees all the different conferences in, in in the event of something like this happening. Man, that is a that is a tough question, and I'm going to go ahead and save that question for whenever we're able to do the Bama Beat Roundtable, because um, I'd love to get Cecil and Hunter's thoughts on on that, just because the the job of a college football czar so to speak would be so fascinating and it's hard it's hard to envision what that person would do on a daily basis and what the the biggest problems that person would have to address when you're not in a pandemic like when you're not having to deal with the coronavirus and, and everything that comes with it it's hard to imagine what that person would have on their plate when things are are normal would would the sport benefit from such a position in this in this time? Probably, right? Probably. The, the only problem you would have is power five autonomy. So the the person in this position would kind of be torn between making sure the power five can play as many games as they possibly can safely because, they're heavily financially incentivized to do those kinds of things and, and give television partners as many games as they possibly can, therefore generate as much revenue as they possibly can. But in doing so, you're you're kind of screwing your G5 programs that not only from the football perspective, but from their entire athletic department, 
are pretty reliant on those buy gains where ULM can go to Texas A&M and take a 40-point beating for $2 million. Right. Uh, I don't know how you balance both of those needs at the same time. That's a great point. I guess someone, the NCAA or the conferences or somebody, would would pay that person a lot of money to find the answer to those problems. But, man, that would be – that would be difficult. Well, that's that's definitely why a guy like Roger Goodell gets paid, you know, close to forty million dollars a year. And everybody thinks that's astronomical, but you know, and granted that having the Power Five versus the G Five, that's not a dilemma that the NFL deals with. Um, but to, just to me, the way that I looked at it, and and I, you kind of saw this coming months ago. Not that I thought that we were going to be in the situation we are right now with the coronavirus and you know potentially football not happening. But when you look at other sports, people keep pointing to the NFL and the NBA and Major League Baseball and things like that and saying, you know, I don't understand why they're heading in the, the direction they're heading with, with hap- it, it happening, but we can't get college football on the same page. Well, you have so many different decision makers. You know, Roger Goodell is kind of the judge, jury, and executioner uh, when it comes to the NFL and kind of what he says based off of the granted he's getting the inputs from owners and things like that. But He's kind of the guy. And when you have that kind of singular entity that is coming together and saying, okay, based off of all these things that I've been given, this is how we're going to handle this. This is what we're going to do. I think in these types of instances, um, you get a, a lot more clarity on how the entire group as a whole can function. Right now, we, we kind of have reached a point, I think, in a lot of ways where it's every conference for themselves. And, and you know, that's unfortunate, but that's kind of how college football works. But you're absolutely right. With, you know, the solutions that that are the the answers to problems that creating that singular entity um, would would do uh, to solve. It also would create a whole new set of problems when it comes to non pandemic related things. And, you know, even during the pandemic, trying to decide, okay who do you take care of? um, Who do you prioritize and things like that? You don't want to make anybody feel inferior, even though, you know, I guess you kind of argue from a financial standpoint and. Yeah, everything else, you know, as unfortunate as that is, I don't think Georgia State's of the belief that they're on the same level as Alabama, um, but they're still a very important factor in in the overall makeup of college football. So I just I thought I'd throw that question out there, but I do agree. Um, Cecil is somebody that I would love to get his take, and Hunter too, because I think Hunter brings the fan perspective uh, a lot, and you know, when it comes to the fan perspective. Um, I feel like he would bring some great points too. He's not just an average fan. I think he would get creative with his answer. So just thought I'd throw that out there. Um, but I think that you had a question that you were asked on Twitter. Yes. Uh, and before, before we get to that, I, I do want to bring up one, uh, one potential issue with having a overarching czar of the sport for power five conferences and for group of five conferences too. But one thing that, uh, Hey, Emma, one thing that uh, – that hello, do you have takes, Emma? We're still podcasting from home, folks. This is, this is how we're conducting <laughs> business these days. Um, one, one issue that that person would have to, to overcome is that some schools are private and some schools are public, which obviously behave in, in different ways. And some schools are on the quarter system and some schools are on the semester system. So you can't just arbitrarily set a date for something – that works for everyone because some schools are in exams and some schools are not, and some schools are in some are in session and some schools are out of session because of the quarter system and the semester system and the lack of overlap that, that comes between the two. So just one of many uh, issues that a so-called college football czar would, would have to deal with. Um, so you're right. Let's get to that, that question. Um, uh, when, Things weren't, uh, I guess, to say things are solidified right now would be a would be a farce. But when when things were more questionable than they were now, uh, I was having a someone on Twitter, Richie Grogan. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Richie asked asked the question: Was if a spring football season would hurt Alabama more than most other Power 5 schools. And and the theory behind that is, and this isn't as much theory as it is stone-cold fact, the NFL ain't changing nothing to benefit college football. The NFL in no way, shape, or form even pretends to have the interest of the college game in its mind. 
Yeah. Take that. Take that as fact. Stone cold fact. So if college football is forced to go to a spring season and we have to say hold a spring season around the same time that the NFL combine and pro day workouts would be happening. Best believe the NFL ain't doing nothing with their draft process to benefit college football. With that in mind, you would have some highly rated players who would probably be behoove themselves more by doing the combine and doing pro day workouts and everything else than they would by playing a college football season in the spring. So assuming assuming that highly rated draft prospects choose to do the draft process more than play their college football season, it stands to reason that a school like Alabama would have more of those defections than others. So the basic question was, would Alabama be hurt more by a spring season than most others? Yeah, and and I completely agree. I mean, you talk about guys who were not eligible last year to come out. Uh, Patrick Sertan, Jalen Waddell, um, those would be two guys that you know that stand out immediately that would probably go ahead and forego a spring season. You got guys like Alex Leatherwood, Devontae Smith, Najee Harris, Dylan Moses. Um, the list goes on and on uh, of players who could, you know, both sides of the football who could ultimately say, hey. You know, I'm not going to play in the spring because I'm trying to get my body ready for an NFL season the following year. Um, And, you know, I could, you know, you're risking injury. You could go ahead and kind of call it. I mean, I think we all know Jalen Waddell um, and, you know, a little bit Jalen Waddell maybe, but Patrick Sertan is a guy who really didn't need to prove himself anymore on the field. He just has to stay in college for, for three years. So if he's there in the spring and that's when they plan on playing the season, but he could come out or go ahead and come out then he's probably going to do that. And then you've got other guys who are kind of unknowns. I wouldn't, I don't know if they'd play or not. You know, LeBron Ray, Landon Dickerson, Deontay Brown, Christian Barmore. Barmore is probably one of those that w- would because we haven't really seen him in a full-time starting role. And I think NFL teams would be scared, but he's another guy that people are projecting to kind of climb um, the, the, um, the draft boards. Once you actually get to see him on the field, you do need to probably actually see him on the field in order for that to happen. But Guys like Waddle, Leatherwood, Smith, Harris, Moses, and Sertan, those six players, uh, would I would almost certainly say you Alabama would not have uh, most, if not all, of those guys. And granted, I'm purely speculating. There were guys who we thought would sit out the bowl game that didn't because they wanted to go and play for their teammates, like Jerry Judy and stuff. But I do think that compared to some other programs, and there would be other programs as well um, that would, you know, who knows? A guy like Trevor Lawrence could choose to ultimately say, no, I don't think I'm going to play this year, or Justin Fields. Everybody's going to be dealing with this. It's not just Alabama. Um, and really, you know, you you got to start taking some of the players that Alabama would lose. You compare that to Clemson losing potentially Trevor Lawrence or Ohio State losing Justin Fields or, you know, whatever, and – it actually could play into Alabama's favor compared to a lot of those other competitive national championship caliber teams. Um, But at the same time, I think from a numbers perspective, Alabama would probably be dealing with it as much or more than anybody. I came to the conclusion that the, the elite programs that are genuine national championship contenders, your Alabama, Clemson, Ohio States of the world, most of them are on a pretty equal talent footing. So I would imagine most of them have pretty similar, would have a pretty similar number of defections. I put it this way. I don't, I don't think Alabama would only lose two guys, whereas Ohio state would lose 11. Right. I don't yeah. anticipate that would happen. So I would imagine most of them would have talent defections of a pretty similar level. Whereas uh, other schools in their conference, such as Minnesota and Iowa for Ohio State or Wake Forest and North Carolina for Clemson or Ole Miss and Texas A&M for, well, Texas A&M recruits on a little higher level. Um, Ole Miss and Mississippi State and Tennessee for uh, Alabama, those schools would probably lose fewer players. So if, as long as we got the usual suspects, in a in a proposed playoff, if that were to happen, as long as those schools that generally get there, like Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, 
as long as they got there to the playoff, I would imagine that they would more or less be on relatively level footing relative to um, their access to talent. But I think it would be more difficult for those schools to get there than it would have been otherwise because those schools would have suffered more significant talent uh, attrition than schools like Ole Miss and Mississippi State and Tennessee. Therefore, the talent gap within their conferences wouldn't be as big, and then they would be more likely to take an upset along the way that, that could keep them out. Did I did I communicate that well? Am I am I making sense? Yeah, and and, and I completely agree with that. Schools would still be as likely to win the national championship once they got to the playoff. It would just be more difficult for them to get to the playoff because their talent gap in their respective conferences would be diminished. Yes. And, and, you know, originally when we first kind of in real time, as we were talking about this just a few seconds ago or a few minutes ago, um, you know, I was talking about Trevor Lawrence and you got to think taking him off of Clemson's team uh, at this point would be, you would think way more detrimental to Clemson than any singular player that Alabama could lose because it's the quarterback position. And right now I don't think you'd, you'd lose Mac Jones. If you're Alabama, I don't, you know, you definitely couldn't lose uh, Bryce young. So the, the quarterback position, you know, for Alabama compared to some of these other programs like a Clemson or an Ohio state would probably be, you know, give Alabama a, an advantage, but then you got to turn around and think about, you know, it's, it's not just a matter of, um, you know, draft, status it's a matter of man you know do you want if you're planning on playing in the nfl even if you're a senior um you know if you're planning to play in the nfl in the fall of 2021 after you get drafted do you want to put yourself through an entire college football season early in the year have just a few months off and then try to go 16 games uh, a 16 game regular season for your rookies because you know we already see uh players who have uh, or come out of college when they go from playing the number of games they do in college to the NFL, there's always what they call the rookie wall because they're they're not used to pushing that bodies their bodies that hard that long into the season, and that's when guys have an entire off season to rest, a, a standard off season. So even for Alabama, you know, I don't think Alex Leatherwood would play. I don't necessarily think Landon Dickerson might not play. Deontay Brown might not play. You talk about already losing Jedrick Will. Well, now Alabama's approaching that season, a spring season potentially. And this is potentially, this wouldn't be a, a guaranteed thing, but more than likely, they'd be having to replace four of their starting five offensive linemen from 2019 compared to having to replace one. And going from having one of the best, most experienced offensive lines in the country to one of the most inexperienced offensive lines in the country. So that's the kind of thing at different position units that, you know, sc- a school like Alabama who might have its quarterbacks coming back and or, you know, competing that how in the same way they thought they would. They might have that advantage, but there's other trade-offs too. So it would be a very wild way for college football to try to adjust. And, you know, I was, I am super excited about this Alabama team and the potential of it. If they get a couple things solved as far as their pass rush, their exterior pass rush and their secondary, I think they could be, you know, this team could be as good as, you know, any of the, the national championship caliber teams that we've seen in the past. It's just a matter of, you know, if you push this to the spring, it's going to change everything, not only for Alabama, but for other schools. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and honestly, it would come down to personal decisions for for a lot of these guys. Like, <clears throat> I, I'm of the opinion that I don't know that you could improve your stock by like a round in the combine and um and and pro days and and all that in in this hypothetical where spring season's going on i think most of the people that would be incentivized to do that are the people who are already top 15 picks and you could only hurt yourself by playing in a season and getting hurt or, or otherwise or people who are maybe late first round early second that could maybe bump themselves up 10 or 15 picks and, and make a bunch of money for themselves that way. But if you're someone who is mid to late second or anything after that, and you're trying to increase your stock by an entire round or more, I, I think you're more likely to do that in a college football season than you are in, in a pro day and the combine and, and et cetera. But I, I could be reading that incorrectly. And I, I, well, 
Well, the, what, what, I, what I would add, you know, based off of what you said, and this is just because you're right, this is these are going to be the kind of decisions that a lot of these major players would have to make, but it all depends on the timeline of the season too. You know, if the, if yeah. the actual draft is happening um, in the middle of the college football season, you know, what we do know is that these NFL teams, whenever they draft you and they, they've invested a first-round pick or a second-round pick, you know, look, go look at, you know, Lamar Jackson, you know, getting tackled out over that jet ski um, and, it, you know, gets caught doing that in the video. The Baltimore Ravens, I guarantee you, they called him immediately and was like, hey, that can never happen again. You can't put yourself in unnecessary risk. If they've already invested the picks and things in you as a player, they're not going to want you playing any more college football from that point forward. Yeah. Um, and then also, you know, from the combine perspective, it's like I said, people are already, there's this growing concern for putting college players in a position where even though they would have a few months to rest, making them play two seasons in one year uh, with only just a few months rest between would not be good for their bodies. And, and I don't know how many people are on board with that. I don't know the science behind it, but I have seen multiple people bring that up. Um, it's even more so having to play two seasons with one of them being an NFL season. So NFL teams might be saying, you know, tell a guy like Jalen Waddle, hey, we really would like to take you in the first round, but, you know, if you're not going to be able to contribute at all to us in, the, in year one because you played an entire college football season to start the year, um, that can kind of affect, you know, their, a team's decision-making process. These are the kind of things that is going to be really interesting to, to monitor because in any normal year, I don't think, you know, Landon Dickerson would be considering sitting out any season because I just don't think from a NFL prospect standpoint, even though I do think he would be, you know, somewhere drafted in the, in the middle, uh, maybe even as early as uh, the fourth round, if he had a great season, he could kind of climb, but, I, I kind of peg him as a mid-round guy right now, but being a mid-round guy compared to maybe an NFL team viewing you after you've spent, you know, the, the first four or five months of the season playing a college football season, or excuse me, not of the season, but of the year, playing a college football season, they might say, I just don't think you're going to be able to contribute for, you know, our, to our football team just a few months after you've put your body already through something like that. So that could actually hurt Landon Dickerson's stock. Or you know what I'm saying? There's trade-offs to everything and it, it's it's tough, man. Yeah. Let's let's hit a few more uh news and notes before we get out of here for this episode. In, in the event that we have a fall football season, which I think everyone is is rooting for, it, it seems more likely than not that you're going to be at at least 50% capacity, if not significantly lower than that. If you go by some of the comments from South Carolina AD Ray Tanner, who I think he was looking at a roughly 15,000 um, limit on on attendance, or at least that's a number that they have looked at as something that could be feasible and safe from a, from a uh, widespread health perspective. You could see Alabama football games where there are 20,000 or fewer people in Bryant-Denny Stadium, is your mind prepared for that visual? Um, now, do you mean from watching it on TV or from seeing it in person? Because from my personal perspective, my guess is, and I could be very wrong, but if they're going 20% capacity in the stands, they're probably doing something similar. I would guess at the very... You know, you're talking about cutting out at least half of the media who cover the games. And right. for, you know, it's very possible that that myself, maybe you, but, you know, I know Cecil's going to be there. If they have anybody that can be in the press box, it's going to be Cecil. Then it's going to be you. I'm, you know, I, hey, I'm, I'm right. I'm way back here in the back. Um, <laughs> I, so if, if you start talking about cutting everything in half, more than likely I'm watching the game from home, which I'm fine with. Um, everybody's got to make sacrifices and I understand that, but from the perspective of seeing it from the fan perspective, like I would be watching it on TV and stuff. I will be curious to see, you know, they do a lot of shots of the crowds, um, you know, before they go to commercial on CBS and, you know, but I know they've talked about, you know, kind of pumping in artificial crowd noise. I think that would be really important. Um, I was watching kind of a, a baseball um, game and I don't know what it was. I haven't been keeping up too much with that, but it was live. Um, I mean, it was actually happening, but uh, you, you you see a guy hit a home run, and just you you even in baseball, I wouldn't have realized just how much the crowd factors in to the experience on TV. It was just weird. And then when he gets to home plate after he's you know kind of rounded all the bases, 
his teammates can't be there kind of waiting on him, you know, all slapping him. They're all kind of giving him air fives and stuff like that. It was very strange. And for us who pay attention to and watch college football and the way the crowd is so involved in that, I feel it, it just, it, it's going to be wild. What do you think about it as far as, you know, there only being 20,000 people? Uh, well, I, one of my bigger questions is how Alabama satisfies its middle and lower tier donors because in a well first of all if you're only allowed to put 20,000 people in Bryant Denny Stadium single game tickets are a thing of the past that that's that's just not going to be allowed in the stadium because there isn't going to be enough room for that you're basically only going to have your season ticket holders in the building and of those season ticket holders you would imagine the priority is given to the the bigger donors, the ones that, that forward the most money to the athletic department are the ones that would be given preferential treatment in terms of getting seating in the stadium if all season ticket holders are not welcome into the stadium for capacity limit reasons. So I would be curious how Alabama satisfies or uh, deals with its middle to lower tier donors if some of those donors are not allowed into the stadium uh, due to a, a finite number of, of tickets available. So that would that would fascinate me. Something that, that I've been – so I'm, I'm a soccer person. I, I watch a lot of Premier League and MLS and Bundesliga and, and all that. And when I watch the Premier League on NBC Sports Network, the broadcast pumps in crowd noise for the viewer at home. And it gives you the option to watch it without crowd noise on the NBC app or, or online or whatever. And I I want to get your opinion on this. I'm not crazy about the broadcast pumping in crowd noise. Now, if the stadiums choose to do it for their own players and coaches or for to simulate a home field advantage that a crowd of 20,000 won't necessarily give you, that's their choice. I understand that. I'm not crazy about the broadcast doing it because I think it's kind of – I think we as sports consumers need to understand and need to really consume what sports are like right now because we're in a very historic moment. Like three years from now, God willing, three years from now, Bryant Denny Stadium is going to have 100,000 people in it and everybody's going to be screaming and, and probably drunk and everything's going to be normal, right? And – it's going to be the same sounds and visuals that we have grown accustomed to over the previous 10 years. They will be restored and everything will be fine. But that's not the time we live in right now. These are historic times that we're living in. And I think we would benefit from really experiencing them and having memories of watching someone score a touchdown with little to no noise going on or hearing so clearly a lot of the things that are said on the field or around the field because there isn't so much crowd noise to drown them out. I think it's kind of indicative of our current moment in history that sports are happening in relative quiet. So I would prefer if the broadcast don't pump in the crowd noise and it's up to a stadium-by-stadium stadium decision if they want to pump in that, that crowd noise. What, what do you think of that? That's very interesting um, because kind of before uh, I kind of approached it with a sense of, you know, any way that they can provide the viewership with any sort of sense of normalcy. Um, but I understand where you're coming from with that. And that's actually an interesting perspective and kind of opens my eyes a little bit, to be quite honest. Um, and, you know, I, I don't really know how I feel about it, uh, because, like I said, watching that baseball game the other night, it was it was so strange. It just it didn't feel like there was any sort of energy behind hitting a home run, and I just worry that you're going to lose the overall experience um, or the excitement regarding sports in general if there's not kind of crowds fueling, or you know at least if, if you're hearing that. Now, granted, they're I mean they could take the same approach that the XFL did, where you mic up some of your players. You you that they roughly had you know, 20,000 people in their stands. And so you could hear the crowd noise on TV enough and you had other aspects to kind of mask that a little bit. Maybe if they took that route, that might be something that they would entertain. I doubt they would probably do that with college, um, that they're not going to mic up college 
players more than likely. But, you know, point being, they might try to get creative. Yeah. um, Who knows what would be said. I just I don't think that would ever happen. But point being, I take your point. Um, The other aspect of this, because we're talking about potential home field advantage and the, the potential lack thereof. This is something that I've thought about, and you've seen this um, with with other sports that are happening right now. When you don't have crowds involved, the mental aspect of the game becomes a lot easier. And, and you know, you for the, the the guy that comes to my mind, just that I'll use as an example, from everything that we always heard about Tim Tebow, he was not a great practice player. But when the lights would come on, you let him start getting fueled by the energy of the crowd. Um, when things mattered, he played at his best in a lot of situations. Um, would not having fans in the stands or having a very limited amount affect those kind of players and vice versa. If you're one of those people that play great in practice because there's no pressure and then you get out there on the field and you've got 105,000 people sitting there watching you and you get nervous, you start getting your nerves involved and mentally break down. Do you think that it's possible that we could see certain players uh, perform better and we wouldn't know I mean we would that's the bottom line we don't know what we could you know you could try to attribute it to that but you know we never would fully know but do you think it's possible that certain guys might play worse with having uh, no crowd at their back or you know on the flip side do you think certain guys might play better with having no crowd and as far as you know the teams they're like Texas A&M a couple of years ago their their home away splits were huge they were great at home terrible away if you take away home field advantage when they go on the road, do they become a much more consistent football team, make it, meaning that they might look better than they actually are? Is that possible? No, I think you're right. And I think you've already seen some of that in in soccer. To, to go back to, to that example, you've heard from, from players who admitted that they depend on the energy of the crowd to keep their stamina up and keep making aggressive runs in the – 75th minute and the 80th minute and the 90th minute like they depend on the energy of the crowd to do those things and they they found it difficult to to keep that aggression and positivity up later in in matches you've already seen that on on the soccer front and i would imagine it it's uh it is also that way in in american football if uh if we do end up playing games in front of 20,000 people um and if we do have games in front of people of, of any size, Alabama fans are going to have to do so on their phones. Alabama's going to a mobile-only ticketing model, starting with the 2020 football season. But it sounds like they're going to be continuing that for uh, the foreseeable future. I, I've heard from, from people who uh, enjoy ticket stubs as, as souvenirs that, uh, that those, are, those are a thing of the past, but also from, from people who have fathers or grandfathers or, or grandmothers, et cetera, that enjoy going to these sporting events but either don't own a smartphone or don't really know how to operate one where getting into these games could be could be difficult from from that perspective. Did did anything strike you when that announcement was made? That's actually a, an aspect of this that I didn't think about. Um, I really the only thing that I thought about negatively about it was, you know, there are a lot of people who do like to keep those as souvenirs and kind of um, it's a way for people to say, Hey, I was here for this game and that game. And, um, uh, but from an older generation perspective, I did, I, that's something that didn't even cross my mind, but I could think of at least a couple of people I know personally that would really struggle with, with an electronic ticket process. And so, you know, how do you combat that? Um, you know, if you're, you're still rocking the flip phone, uh, like I know of a lot of the older generation is, how do you, you know, if you want to go to a game, how do you do that? How do you manage that? Um, you know, maybe they might have a process like back in the day where you can print off your tickets and have a piece of paper, um, but that way they're not maybe distributing it. Um, but then at the same time, you're still exchanging pieces of paper. Maybe the person can just hold up a piece of paper and you can scan the barcode or something that they've the printed pa- off. Paper will not be scanned. That they've said that that is a de- definite thing. Yeah, paper, paper, emailed and printed tickets are not going to be accepted or, or at least you have to work with Alabama's ticket office to create a alternative for you. So I, I, Alabama oh, wow. is aggressively pushing toward people using their phones to, to scan their tickets or, or using an email account that they can access on their phone to, to scan their tickets. 
That's interesting. And I wonder, you know, how much will that you got to think if you're Verizon or AT&T or one of these, you know, carriers, that's music to your ears because it probably is going to force people, you know, more people to kind of avoid that kind of technology to get into that kind of technology. If you want to be able to go to games that that or you go with the younger, uh, you know, member of your family and they do it for you or something. But I I don't know. Uh, what what are your thoughts on it? Because I don't I don't really know what to make of that. I mean, look, I I realize that it's it's kind of insensitive and mean to think this way, but technological advances in society uh, are unavoidable, and there are times where they can leave people who aren't technologically savvy in uncomfortable circumstances. I imagine. 20 years ago or, or more like 30 years ago when when email was becoming uh, a way that that people did a significant portion of their communication or at least important communication was was done that way i imagine that there were a lot of people then who weren't super comfortable with using desktop computers and they had no choice but to to learn the ways of email and other communication via desktop computer because that's the way it was going, and it was either get with the times or get left behind. And I realize there are a lot of people that are going to be put in uncomfortable situations by this move, but the way I see it, this was going to happen. Whether it happened in 2020, whether it happened in 2025, whether it happened in 2030, whenever it happened, this was going to happen. And there were going to be people that were put in an uncomfortable situation when it happened. So might as well do it now, I guess. And, and look, I'm aware that's insensitive. I'm very aware of that. But this was going to happen. People were going to be uncomfortable by it. Might as well do it now, I guess. Yeah, um, that that's it's, actually fair. It's It's reality. It's life. It is, yeah, and and that's a good way to put it. Um, there's plenty of other examples that that fall right directly in line with that, where it's just it's a changing of times, and and those things happen. Um, I guess from a personal perspective, I'm thinking of of several people who would be affected by that, and um, I'm sure they would be extremely disappointed. But I mean, uh, yeah, and, and we we all knew as soon as COVID became like a big thing, and, and events started getting canceled, and the country went into lockdown. Yes, we started figuring out life as we knew it will probably never be the same. Does that mean that we won't get back to a, a certain sense of normalcy? No, um, I, at some point we will. But the the permanent uh, fallout from this, as far as how we function as a society, you know, even things like shaking hands and you know the the people being kind of packed on top of each other in restaurants, and there's so many different aspects that you know you got to look at and say, you know, more than likely this will never go back to the way it was. And, you know, the, the the hard copy that you would have in hand of a ticket or whatever you however you want to put it, the, the paper ticket. Yeah, um, that's now a thing of the past. And it's just another. And, and it's like you said, they probably were heading in this direction anyways. It's just this gives people a reason to say, hey, you know, we need to make this kind of decision sooner rather than later. Um, so that 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 does make sense. Uh, so so again, like I'm, I'm not thrilled about an, an insensitive take but I, I also imagine that most of the people that uh are incapable of, of handling a mobile ticketing um process are also okay emma are She's also not not, either. Uh, emma you're killing me here i'm trying to emma's, podcast. emma's not happy with this with a ticket process either well, Emma can't work a smartphone, so yeah, she's probably she's probably in trouble. <laughs> As I was trying to say before I was so rudely interrupted, Emma, uh-huh. Um, people who are going to have trouble with a mobile ticketing process probably aren't listening to a podcast either. So so I can that, only that. hope that I can only hope that the I'm not directly hurting the feelings of a listener with with that take. Um Quickly before before we go, this is something that's happening more recently. As in, as we're recording this podcast, schools, Alabama included, are transitioning from voluntary workouts to mandatory workouts. And Cecil has done the the reporting on this, so go to tiesports.com to see his his story on this. At, at Alabama, 
Alabama has said they're going to have the vast majority of their players there. Um, they wouldn't confirm if that number would be 100%. What that basically means is they're mandatory by definition of the NCAA rulebook in that coaches can require players to be there. But they're not mandatory in practice in that if a player approaches Nick Saban or anyone on the Alabama staff and says, hey, man, I'm not super comfortable doing workouts right now in the group workouts in the in the COVID era, they're not going to pull that kid's scholarship. That's that's more or less what that comes down to. And of course, it's not going to be mandatory for someone who has tested positive for the virus and is currently quarantining to thank you, Emma, to make themselves safe from it. Um, so that's that's what's going on right now and i wanted to cover that on the, on the podcast for for listeners that yes workouts are mandatory but alabama might not have 100 percent attendance for very good and obvious reasons fair enough all right well you know, i gotta be honest i feel like we've gotten a pretty solid podcast out considering uh emma has done a fantastic job of keeping things under wraps as much yeah, as third, possible uh, third, third co-host on on this podcast thank you for your time Emma. we appreciate it Hey, uh, man, I just uh, the fact that she 95, 99% of this has been she's been fantastic. So and you man, you can't even really tell. I'm listening to it on the other side. And I mean, I actually like the uh, I think she made some good points, um, some some, you know, some eye opening points. So we appreciate her contributing as well. But that's going to wrap it up for yet another episode of the Bama V podcast brought to you by Wiggles Pickles. Brett, always appreciate you hopping on here with me, brother. I'll, uh, I guess we'll talk soon, and we'll get a recruiting podcast later in the week. Yes, yes, we'll cover some some recruiting late in the week because there's been some developments on on that front, but also a lot going on outside of recruiting. So figured it was worth two podcasts. So we'll uh, we'll talk to y'all later in later in the week. At least Clint and I will. Don't know if Emma will be on. Don't know if Harper will be on, but definitely Clint and I. Definitely. All right. Well. Thanks again for listening. This is another episode of the Bama Beat Podcast brought to you by Wiggles Pickles. Emma, we're done. We're done. What are you doing? We're done. <laughs> hey, she, dude, she knows we're done now. She knows she can cut loose. I don't blame her. Um, all right, brother. I really appreciate you hopping on here with me. All right, man. Talk to you later. All right, brother. Bye. See you, man.